Deeper and Deeper by John Lutz. I'm cold, and I'll never be warm again. Each wave is higher than the one before, and I was the daughter always unfairly referred to as vain, greedy, and shallow. Mother was the first to tell me, Maudie, it ain't your fault, but the piece of you that lets you know right from wrong is missing. If that's true, that it wasn't my fault, then I don't deserve this. I mean, crime is mostly in the intent. That's where right and wrong come in. And I wasn't thinking about being right or wrong when I planned on killing Graham. I was thinking only about being rich. But here I am in my Gucci velour bathing suit, wrapped up in a sheet tight as a mummy. I can't twitch so much as a muscle. Larry did this to me. He tied me out of sight here to the base of the pier at Graham's private boat dock. When the tide rises enough, I'll drown. By now, Larry's in his car, halfway to Miami. When the authorities determine the time of my death, he'll have an alibi. He'll have been in another part of the state with friends. Tomorrow morning, when the tide's out again, he'll drive back here, untie and unwind me, and let me be discovered washed up on the beach, unmarked and dead, my hair a mess. Accidental drowning will be the verdict. Nobody'll connect Larry and me. Larry doesn't know right from wrong either, but he knows smart from dumb. It doesn't do any good to scream. This is a private, desolate stretch of beach, and the roar of the surf is so loud, if anyone did hear me, they'd probably think it was a gull. A particularly large wave swells in the moonlight and rolls toward me, rising higher and breaking out in white foam at its crest, fascinating and horrible. I hold my breath and close my eyes as it washes over me. Then it recedes, and I gasp precious air. The water is high above my waist now, and the next wave is roaring in like an oncoming train, swelling green-black and monstrous in the moonlight. Sure, I married Graham for his money, but I wasn't the first to do that. His former wife was a two-timing gold digger. He hired detectives and managed to divorce her without giving her any of his multimillion-dollar real estate holdings in Florida. She couldn't even get back into the house to get most of her clothes. Another wave strikes me, colder and with more savage force than the last. I have to shake my head to clear my eyes and nose of water. I cough, choking and spitting. I can't believe I didn't die right there. Wouldn't that cross up Larry if I died without water in my lungs? Okay, I married Grimm, but I didn't want to live the rest of my life with him, and after hearing about how he cut off his first wife, I knew divorce wasn't my answer. So I started driving my Porsche down to the Overlook Lounge about five miles down the coast. That's where I met Freddy. He was sort of an aging beachcomber, with broad shoulders, a big smile, and a beautiful tan. 
He asked if he could buy me a drink. I said yes, and we sized each other up. He was single, living alone, seeing life getting shorter while his unfulfilled ambitions kept their distance. We got along well enough. There's no way we can keep this a secret forever, I told him one night. Words bound to get out. So, he said, tilting back his gorgeous head to drink his piña colada. So you can't be the one to kill my husband, I said. He lowered the glass and stared at me. I explained how it would be better if he hired someone to kill Graham. That way the murderer would be once removed from anybody with a motive. Freddy could have an ironclad alibi, and so could I. You're crazy, he said. You don't know right from wrong. I told him how much my husband was worth. He thought about it. Then we got down to details. Freddy hired Bert, an old acquaintance of his who used to be in the marine salvage business, but was down on his luck and needed money. Bert had served time in the Midwest for killing a man who deserved killing. He figured the government owed him a victim who didn't deserve killing, but whose demise would profit Bert. Graham was made to order. The three of us worked out a plan, and it worked just as neat as can be, like when I cried and cried until my father bought me a convertible for my high school graduation. I was the first girl in my crowd to own a car, but then I was way ahead of everyone in school in most things, not excluding looks, if you'll pardon my bragging about what happens to be true. Anyway, while Freddy was with his mom in Milwaukee and I was on a shopping spree in Orlando, Bert hit Graham on the head, put him in his Mercedes sedan, and shoved the car and Graham over the cliff near the coast road by the estate. Nobody saw it as anything but an accident. I got lots of sympathy and really got to like how I looked in black. Freddy, Bert, and I kept our distance from each other. That was supposed to last for six months, but about month three I started thinking and worrying. Besides me, there were two other people who were aware that Graham had been murdered. I couldn't feel safe knowing that. Even if I married Freddy, we'd both have to worry about Bert. Of course, I could have Freddy kill Bert, or vice versa, if you'll pardon the pun. But then I thought, why not hire someone to kill them both, someone twice removed from Graham's death? The police would never make a connection. So after spending a week in Orlando and sort of screening candidates, I chose Larry. He was a great-looking guy, slender but strong, with sharp features, a neat little mustache, and kind of cold gray eyes that gave me shivers I liked. Oh, this is terrible. That last wave was really scary. Wait a second. Let me catch my breath before I go on. It didn't take long to convince Larry he should do away with both Freddy and Bert and then spend the rest of his life with me and Graham's real estate holdings. Larry did a swell job, too, 
As far as the cops or newspapers knew, Freddy and Bert were just two guys who barely knew each other who'd been killed in accidents in different parts of the state. That Larry sure is resourceful. Too resourceful, it turns out. He talked me into putting a big, big chunk of Graham's money in a safe deposit box in his name to protect it from inheritance taxes, he said. He must have used the same mathematics I did. If two people besides me knowing about Graham's death was risky, one was risky. He figured I'd get rid of him after a while. But he was wrong. I didn't plan on waiting a while. That's my single solace. Larry doesn't know about the dynamite from one of Grimm's construction sites I wired to a timer under the front seat of his car. He'll never reach Miami. He'll die before I do. And the state will get all of Graham's money. All of it. I ask you, is that right? I suppose there's a moral here somewhere, the sort Mother always found. Like, if you keep getting yourself involved in something deeper and deeper, you're bound to dr- Good evening, listening audience. Welcome to October 28, 2023, and another of my Howling Halloween editions on Michael's Saturday Surprise. Tonight, we're going to start things off with one of my favorite OTR series, an episode of Suspense. Broadcast on June 14th, 1955, this is called The Whole Town Sleeping. Suspense. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. A small Midwestern town lying asleep in the moonlight of midnight. Could anything be more familiar, more peaceful, more safe? Certainly not. Unless Ray Bradbury is writing about it. For his is a typewriter of terror. And once again, it has pounded out a tale not only calculated to keep you in suspense, but likely to cost you a night or two of sleep. Listen, listen then as Miss Agnes Moorhead stars in... The whole town's sleeping, which begins in just a moment. How does our nation honor heroism? One way is to award the Soldier's Medal, a bronze octagon on which is displayed an eagle standing between two groups of stars. The medal is suspended from a blue ribbon with 13 narrow stripes in the center, seven white and six red. One of the newest and least known of all the American decorations The Soldier's Medal, authorized in 1926, is bestowed for heroism not involving actual conflict with an armed enemy. There are many forms of gallantry in addition to those demonstrated in battle. 
The Soldier's Medal was conceived to honor those soldiers who, in non-combat situations, perform bravely and at great peril to themselves, men who serve as an inspiration to others. The Soldier's Medal holds an important place among America's awards for heroism. And now... The Whole Town Sleeping, starring Agnes Moorhead. A tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. It was a warm summer night in the middle of Illinois country. The little town was deep, far away from everything. Kept to itself by a river and a forest, and a ravine. In the town, the sidewalks were still scorched. The stores were closing and the streets were turning dark. Screen doors whined their springs and banged. And there was the sound of Grandma Hanlon's hammock creaking across the street. On her solitary porch, Lavinia Nebs, age 37, very straight and slim, sat waiting. Here I am, Lavinia. Lavinia turned. There was Francine at the bottom porch step, all in snow white. I won't be a minute, Francine. I just have to lock the door. All right. I do like your dress, dear. Why, thank you, Francine. You look so well in that color. I'm afraid I can never wear it. It makes me look sallow. Oh, no, it doesn't. I'm sure it doesn't. Of course, I've always loved you in white. <laughs> Good evening, lady. Good evening, Mrs. Hanlon. Good evening. Well, where are you ladies going all dressed up so pretty? To the movies, Mrs. Hanlon. It's William Holden tonight. <laughs> hmm. You won't catch me out on a night like this. Not with the lonely one strangling women. Oh. Lock myself in with my gun. That's what I'm going to do. Well, I wouldn't worry, Mrs. Hanlon. Oh, you wouldn't, wouldn't you? What about Eliza Ramsell? You think she's not worrying? I'll lock myself in with a gun. That's what you ladies should do. Oh, she's so silly. She's a silly old woman. Hasn't got anything better to do than scare herself with rumors and gossip. Well, just the same. Hattie McDollis was killed a month ago. And Roberta Ferry the month before. And now Eliza Ramsell disappeared. Eliza Ramsell walked off with a traveling salesman, if you ask me. But the others... Oh, strangled. Oh, Francine. They reached the edge of the ravine that cut the town in two. Stood there. Behind them were the lighted houses. Ahead, deepness, moistness, fireflies and dark. The ravine had to be crossed to reach the movies deep and black as it cut through the hill, then a creaking bridge to cross over the stream, and then 113 steps up the steep and brambled bank to the other side. The ladies stood there looking down. I just hate to think of you coming back alone tonight, Lavinia. Oh, Bosh. I do wish you didn't live on this side of town. Don't you get lonely living by yourself in that house? Oh, maids love to live alone. Come on, we'll take the shortcut. I'm afraid even in the dusk. The ravine scares oh, me. Oh, come on. Don't be so silly. I'll hold your hand. Lavinia, cool as mint ice cream, took her friend's arm and led her down the dark winding path into the cricket warmth and frog sound 
and mosquito-delicate silence. Let's run. Lavinia, please. No, no, why should we? If Lavinia hadn't turned her head just then, she wouldn't have seen it. But she did turn her head, and it was there. Back among a clump of bushes, half-hidden, but laid out as if she'd put herself there to enjoy the soft stars, lay Eliza Ramsell. Her face moon-freckled, her eyes like white marble. And then Francine saw it, too, and the women stood on the path for a frozen second, not believing what they saw. In a moment, we continue with the second act of... Suspense. Another visit with Joe and Daphne Forsythe. Joe? Yeah, Daphne? You think I should go on a diet? No. But I'm adding weight. Only in the right places. Flatterer. Seriously, if I put on any more pounds, I'll be out of style. What style? The current one. It calls for that slim, chic look. The beanpole look, you mean. Boy, I don't get it. Here we are, citizens of the healthiest country on earth, with hundreds of different kinds of good food. And what are Americans doing? They're starving themselves. Well, it's fashionable. I don't want you to lose interest in my figure. Don't worry, I won't. Say, speaking of that, look at this. Here's a figure with real interest. Oh? $45 billion. It says here in the paper that the investment in United States savings bonds has reached more than $45 billion. What do you think of that figure? Mmm, that's a lot of money. And just think, every $3 invested in bonds pays back 4 that's real interest for you. I know. And every savings bond is guaranteed by the government. Right. Oh, Joe, I wish you cared about my figure the way you do about those bonds you buy every payday. Honey, I've got great interest in both. Well, you just see that you stay that way. And now, starring Agnes Moorhead, act two of The Whole Town Sleeping. Then the police came and darted their flashlights around in the shadows of the ravine. And Lavinia held on tightly to the shuddering Francine. And the night grew toward 8.30. You didn't move her, ladies? No, no, of course not. Oh, no, we didn't touch her. How could we? And you didn't hear anything unusual? No, no, nothing. It's, it's the, the lonely one, isn't it? The lonely one did it, didn't he? Well, I couldn't say, ma'am. We knew her, you know. She was a friend of ours. I'm sorry, that's too bad. I'll have one of my men walk you across the ravine. Oh, that that won't be necessary. Thank you very much. We'll be all right. Lavinia, come along, dear. I've never seen a dead person before. Come on. Come on, it's only a little after 8.30. We'll pick up Helen and get on to the show. The show? Lavinia, you don't mean Of it. course I do. We've got to forget about this. There's no good brooding about it. Now, if we hurry, we won't miss too much of the first feature. Well, I thought you'd never come. You're an hour late. Well, Helen, you see... Someone found Eliza Ramsell dead in the ravine. Oh. Oh, no. Who found her? Well, we don't know. How awful. Oh, I, I don't think we'd better go to the show tonight. Oh, of course we will the last showing today, and I wouldn't miss William Holden for the world. Besides, the lonely one can't kill three ladies all at once, and, and 
Anyway, it's too soon. The murders come a month separated. Come along, Helen. Well, all right. I I'll get a sweater. Wait for me. Why didn't you tell her about us finding Eliza? Well, why upset her? Time enough tomorrow. Tonight we're going to the show, so let's not talk about it anymore. Enough's enough. The ladies walked downtown and stopped at the drugstore, which was a few doors from the theater. Lavinia bought a quarter's worth of green mint chews, and the druggist dropped the mints into a sack with a silver shovel. You looked mighty cool this noon, Miss Lavinia, when you was in. <laughs> so cool and nice, somebody asked after you. Oh? Man sitting at the counter. He watched you walk out, and he says to me, Hey, who's that? Just like that, he says it. <laughs> Why, that's Lavinia Nebs, prettiest maiden lady in town, I says. Beautiful, so beautiful, he says. Where she lived. You didn't... You, you didn't give him her address. Well, now, I didn't give him the exact address. I said over on uh, Park Street, near the ravine. Hope you didn't mind. Well, that settles it. We're going straight home. That man asking for you, Lavinia, you're next. You want to be dead in that ravine? Oh, nonsense. I'm not going to miss the movie. You two can do what you want. I'm going. In the end, they all went to the show. Lavinia was like that. Cool, self-possessed, and persuasive. And when they came out of the show, the streets were midnight clean and empty as they walked Francine home. Lavinia, Helen, stay here with me tonight. It, it's late. Mrs. Murdoch has an extra room. No, thanks. I don't sleep well away from my own bed. Please, Lavinia, please. I promise I'll call you the very minute I get home. Will you? Yes. Will you really? Yes, I promise. Now, Helen, you make a promise to call you, too. I will. Well, good night. Good night. And please, be careful. Now, I'll walk you home, Helen. Well, I, uh, I don't suppose it's any use asking you to stay with me, Lavinia. There's no reason for me to. You certainly acted strangely all evening. I'm just not afraid, that's all. And anyway, the lonely one wouldn't be around. Not now, with the police discovering Eliza's body and all. Oh, I, I feel so guilty. I'll be drinking a cup of coffee just about the time you get to the ravine. <sighs> oh, that awful bridge in the dark. Oh, you will call us the minute you get home, won't you? I won't sleep a wink if you don't. I promise you I'll call. Now, good night. Good night. Lavinia Nebs walked down the midnight streets, down the late summer silence. She saw the houses with their dark windows, and far away she heard a dog barking. She thought to herself, in five minutes, I'll be safe home. In five minutes, I'll be phoning Francine and Helen. They're so silly. Like old hens. <laughs> old, I'm older than either of them. I... She heard the voice singing away among the trees, and she walked a little faster. And then coming down the street toward her in the dimming moonlight was a man. Well, 
Look who's here. Uh, what a time of night for you to be out, Miss Nebs. Officer Kennedy. Oh, I'm so glad it's you. Anything wrong, Miss Nebs? No, no, nothing at all. I'm just glad it's you. You know, you shouldn't be out so late. Yes, I know. I've been to the movies. The late show. Well, I'd better see you across the ravine. No, no. Thank you. I can make it fine. Moon's going to be behind the trees. It'll be pretty dark. Well, I'm not afraid of the dark, Mr. Kennedy. Are you sure you'll be all right? Yes, yes, quite sure. Thank you. Uh -huh. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll wait here till you're across. If you need help, just give a yell and I'll come a-running. Oh, thank you. Good night. Good night, Miss Nibs. As Lavinia walked on, she thought... I won't walk in the ravine with any man. How do I know who the lonely one is? He could be anyone. Then the ravine. She stood at the top of the 113 steps that led down the steep brambled bank and across the creaking bridge. Then a hundred yards and up through the black shadows to Park Street and home. Three minutes from now, I'll be putting my key in the house door. Nothing can happen. Nothing. And she started down the dark black steps into the deep ravine night, counting as she went. One, two, three... In a moment, we continue with the third act of Suspense. We have, together, ample capacity in freedom to defend freedom. This is NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. As in many other complex activities, in NATO too, it's the little things that count. For instance, spare parts for the armed forces equipment of NATO countries. This complex problem is handled by the NATO Supply Center at Châteauroux, France, which assists NATO countries in providing a common system for supply of spare parts. The United States of America is a part of NATO. You should be aware of and alert to the programs and objectives of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And now... Starring Agnes Moorhead, Act Three of The Whole Town Sleeping. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. And Lavinia 14, went down the steps, 15, counting as she went. Sixteen. The ravine 17, was deep. Eighteen. And the world was gone. 19, the safe 20, world of people and men. The locked doors, the town, the drugstore, theater, the lights, everything was gone. Only the ravine existed and lived, black and huge about her. 31, 32, 33, 34. Nothing's happened, has it? No one around? Is there? 40, 41, 42, 43, 44. Remember, remember that old ghost story you told each other when you were children? About the dark man coming into your house and you upstairs in bed? And now he's at the first step coming up to your room. Now he's at the second step. Now he's at the third and fourth and the fifth step. How you laugh and scream to that story. And now the horrid man is at the twelfth step. Opening your door. And now he's standing by your bed. You! What? What? 
there at the bottom of the steps is a man. No. No, no. Now he's gone. He was waiting there. Oh. Oh, there's nothing. It's empty. Nothing. There's nothing on the bridge. Oh, you fool. That story I told myself. How silly. Shall I call Mr. Kennedy? Did he hear me scream? Or did I scream? Maybe I only thought I did. And he didn't hear me at all. I'll go back up. I'll go to Helen's and sleep there tonight. No, it's, it's, it's near home now. Don't be silly. Wait. Wait, some, someone's following me. Someone's on the steps behind me. I don't dare turn around. Every time I take a step, he takes one. Officer, Officer Kennedy? Is that you? Is it? The crickets were suddenly still. The crickets were listening. The night was listening to her. Then there was a sound. Only a woodchuck surely beating a hollow log. No, no, it was Lavinia Nebs. It was most surely the heart of Lavinia Nebs. And she went down the steps faster, faster, running now, down the steps, plunging faster and faster, down, down into the pit of the ravine. Go the other way. Cross the bridge. Run. Run, don't turn. Don't, don't look. If you see him, you'll not be able to move. You just run. Up the path between the hills, the top of the path, the street, and even with the light, the fear swirled about her, closing in, pressing. Please. Please, give me time to get inside and lock the door, and I'll be safe. Oh, oh, I'm safe. I'm safe at home. I'm safe. I'm safe. Home. I'll never come out again. Oh, it's so good. It's so safe inside. I'm, I'm locked and safe inside. I. Wait. The window. There's, there's no one there at all. There's nobody. There was no one following me at all. Nobody running after me. How silly. If a man had been following me, he'd have caught me. I can't run as fast as a man. I, I wasn't running from anything except me. The ravine was safer than safe. Oh, oh it's... Oh, it's nice to be home, though. Home's a really good, warm, safe place. The only... She had just put her hand out to the light switch when she heard it behind her in the blackness. Just a movement. <laughs> Who is it? 
which Agnes Moorhead starred in William N. Robeson's production of The Whole Town Sleeping, written by Ray Bradbury and adapted for suspense by Anthony Ellis. In just a moment, the names of the supporting players and a word about next week's story of suspense. How are your brakes? Not the ones on your car. We're sure you keep those in tip-top working order. But how about your own brakes? Are they in working shape? When you're behind the wheel of your car and you feel that impulse to challenge the legal speed limit, can you stop that impulse on a dime? When a less courteous driver does something downright stupid that may inconvenience you, are you likely to do something twice as foolish just to show him he can't push you around? Or can you say halt to your anger before it leads to an accident? Students of human behavior have discovered that most of the accidents on our highways are the result of emotional immaturity. An adult can control his feelings and concentrate on his goal. Don't let childish attitudes keep you from reaching your destination. When other drivers and traffic regulations annoy you, use the brakes in your head as quickly as you would the ones on your car. Remember, accidents don't have to happen. Supporting Agnes Moorhead and the whole town sleeping were William Conrad, Lorene Tuttle, Paula Winslow, Barney Phillips, and Charlie Lung. Listen. Listen again next week when we return with another tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. From June 14, 1955, that was The Whole Town Sleeping, an episode of Suspense. Now let us turn our attention to the Screen Guild Theater and a little something called Arsenic and Old Lace, broadcast on November 25, 1946. Anybody in 
that section of Brooklyn, and they all would tell you the very same thing. The neighbors, the minister, Dr. Harper, even O'Hara, the cop on the beat. You mean them two old Brewster sisters? Why, there ain't two sweeter little ladies in the world. Too bad, though, about that nephew of theirs. Too bad. He sort of... Charge! Charge! Follow me, men! Up San Juan Hill after Teddy Roosevelt! See what I mean? But the Brewster sisters have another nephew, Mortimer. He's dramatic critic on a New York paper. And he's always considered himself quite sane until tonight. And Evie, Aunt Martha, I have news for you. I'm going to marry Elaine Harper. Oh, Mortimer, how nice. Our minister's daughter. Really, Mortimer, we ought to celebrate. Not tonight, darling. I've got to pick up Elaine and get back to town. Have to cover a play tonight. Well, I do hope it's something you'll like for once. What's the name of it, dear? Murder Will Out. I'll bet I can write the review without even seeing it. I always said you were talented, dear. Same old tripe. When the curtain goes up, first thing you see is a dead body. Well, maybe you won't actually see it. It'll be hidden somewhere, like in this window seat. Then someone will come on, walk in sort of casually, lift the cover up of the window seat like this. And... Why, Mortimer, dear, what's the matter? Aunt Abby, Aunt Martha, there's, there's a, a dead man in there. Now, look, aunties, let me say it again slowly. There's a body in the window seat. Yes, dear, we know. You know? Well, of course. Oh, honestly, I never thought Teddy would ever get... Listen, you were planning to send him to that, that sanitarium, Happydale? Yes, dear, it's all arranged. Elaine's father brought the papers over this afternoon. Here they are, all ready for Teddy to sign. Well, he's got to sign them right away. Tonight! If they ever found out he's killed a man, they'll... Oh, Teddy didn't do that. He did He didn't? Now, Mortimer, just forget about it. Forget you even saw the gentleman. Forget? We never dreamed you'd peek. But... Uh... <laughs> but who is he? His name is Hopkins. Adam Hopkins. That's all I really know about him. Except that he's a Methodist. Yes, but... <laughs> What's he doing here? What happened to him? He died. Aunt Martha... Men don't just get into window seats and die. No, Mortimer. He died first. Well, how? Oh, Mortimer, don't be so inquisitive. The gentleman died because he drank some wine with poison in it. Elderberry wine. How did the poison get in the wine? Oh, we put it in the wine because it's less noticeable. When it's in tea, it has a distinct odor. You put it in the wine? Yes, and we put Mr. Hopkins in the window seat because Elaine's father was coming to tea. Then you knew what you'd done. You didn't want Dr. Harper to see the body. Well, not a tease. That wouldn't have been very nice. <laughs> now, Mortimer, dear, you, you can forget all about it. Teddy's down in Panama right now. Panama? You know, the cellar. He always calls the cellar Panama. And the steps over there are San Juan Hill. He's down in Panama now, digging the lock. You mean you're going to bury Mr. Hoskins in the cellar? Of course, dear. That's what we did with the others. Well, I don't think you should... Others? The other gentlemen. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Let me get this straight. When you say others, do you mean others? More than one? Others? Oh. Yes, sir. This is 11, isn't it, Abby? No, dear. This makes 12. <laughs> well, you, you really shouldn't count the first one. After all, he just died. Just died? 
Well, Martha means without any help from us. Mr. Midgley was his name. He was a Baptist. And he came here looking for a room. It was right after you moved to New York, Mortimer. It didn't seem right to leave that lovely room empty with so many people needing it. So we advertised that Mr. Midgley applied. He was so lonely, no kith or kin. We felt so sorry for him. And then when his heart attack came and he sat there dead in that chair. Remember, Martha? It was just like old times. <laughs> Grandfather was a doctor, you know. He always had a cadaver or two around the house. <laughs> Only Teddy insisted that Mr. Midgley was a yellow fever victim and had to be buried at once. So we buried him in Panama. Yes. Mm. He looked so peaceful, didn't he, Abby? Oh, so serene. And we made up our minds right then and there that if we could help other lonely old men find the same peace, we would. So that's, that's how it all started, that man walking in and dropping dead. Oh, well, of course, we realized we couldn't depend on that. Mortimer, that was happening. Mortimer, so, uh, you know those jars of poison that have been up in Grandfather's laboratory all these years? And your Aunt Martha has such a knack for mixing things. <laughs> well, dear, for a gallon of elderberry wine, I take one teaspoonful of arsenic and then add half a teaspoonful of strychnine and then just a pinch of cyanide. Mm. You have quite a kick. Oh, yes, yes. As a matter of fact, one of our gentlemen found time to say how delicious. Look, look, Andy's. Hmm? I, I don't know how to explain it to you, but you can't do things like this. It's against the law. It's not a nice thing to do. Well, I mean, well, this has developed into a very bad habit. Mortimer, we don't stop you from doing things you like to do. Why should you interfere with us? Because... Listen, I've got to rush into town and cover that play. Do a lot of things. There's not a minute to spare. Are you sure you haven't time for dinner? I'm going to try a new recipe. Uh, thanks. I, I couldn't eat a thing. <laughs> This is it, Doctor. Yes, I remember this door. Even when I was a child, it always sounded like inner sanctum. <laughs> Come in. Oh, Johnny, it is dark in here. That means the family still live here. The Brewsters were always sparing with lights. Is that so? Hey, who turns on the lights? I did. Who are you? Yes, what are you gentlemen doing here? Why, Aunt Abby, Aunt Martha, it's Jonathan. You get out of here. But I'm Jonathan, your nephew, Jonathan. Oh, no, you're not. You're nothing like Jonathan, so don't pretend you are. But I am. I'm Jonathan. And this is Dr. Einstein. Abby, his voice does sound like Jonathan's, but his face... Have you been in an accident? No. My face... Dr. Einstein is responsible for that. He changes people's faces. I ought now, to... Easy, Johnny, easy. <laughs> Don't worry, ladies. The last five years, I give Johnny three new faces. I give him another one right away. You'd better, when my own family doesn't even... Oh, Johnny, I'm sorry. I saw that horror picture just before I operated, and I was a little drunk. Well, anyway, now you are home. 
ladies, how often he tells me about Brooklyn, about his house, about his aunts that he loves so much. Oh, please, you, you, you must know him. Speak to him. Tell him so. Well, Jonathan, it's been a long time since you ran away from us. Yes, where have you been all these years? Oh, England, South Africa, Australia, the last five years. Dr. Einstein and I have been in Chicago. Really? We were in Chicago for the World's Fair. We didn't like it. We found Chicago awfully warm. Yeah, it got too hot for us, too. <laughs> well, Jonathan, it was nice to see you again. I, I mean, if you're in a hurry to get somewhere... Not at all, Aunt Abby. That, uh, about the beer, Martha, we mustn't let soup boil over. Um, Jonathan, if you'll excuse us for a minute. Of course. Come along, Martha. Johnny, we have got to work fast. The police, the police have got pictures of your face. I've got to find a place to operate. And we've got to find a place for Mr. Spinalzo, too. Don't waste any worry on that rat. But we can't leave a dead body in the rumble seat. Oh, oh, you shouldn't have killed him, Johnny. He was a nice fellow. He gives us a lift, and what happens? He said I looked like Boris Karloff. Oh. <laughs> Don't worry, Johnny. As soon as I operate and change your face again... Wait a minute. I know just the place. You do? Look, if this family hasn't changed, and I'm sure it hasn't, I'll bet my grandfather's old laboratory is just the, just the way he left. Oh, good. And when you've done with me, why, we can make a fortune here. In Brooklyn? Of course. Practically everybody in Brooklyn needs a new face. <laughs> but, Johnny, your aunts, I, I don't think they want us here. Leave that to me, Doctor. I'll handle it. Why, this house will be our headquarters for years. Oh, that would be beautiful, Johnny. This nice, quiet house and those sweet old ladies. I love them already. I get the bags, yeah? Doctor, we must wait till we're invited. But you just said... We'll be invited. And if they say no? Doctor, two helpless old women... <laughs> Sit down and make yourself comfortable. Ah, it's like comes true, a beautiful dream. It's so nice and peaceful here. That's what makes this house so perfect for us. It's so peaceful. Ah, ah, human! Well, I must say, my dear aunt, it was very kind of you to invite the doctor and myself to dinner. We didn't really invite you, Jonathan. You invited yourself. Well, it just shows you I feel at home already. I'm sure I'm going to like it here. Like it here? You you mean you're going to stay? Oh, hadn't I told you? Now, Jonathan, you needn't think you're going uh, to stay. Abby, uh, the, the dinner dishes. Shouldn't we get started on them, dear? Huh? Oh, oh, yeah, oh yes, 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 of course. Jonathan, we'll speak to you later. <laughs> Johnny! Johnny, just now that Teddy takes me down the cellar, and what do you think I find? What? The Panama Canal. The Panama Canal. Uh, listen, listen. He digs a hole down there. Just the right size for Mr. Spinalzo. Say, that's an idea. What a joke of my aunt's to bury a body in their cellar. <laughs> but... How are we going to get him in? Get him in through those French windows. We can hide him in the window seat. The window seat? It's perfect for a corpse. Why, when I was a youngster, I used to hide there myself. Then, a little later on, when my aunts have gone to bed, 
We'll take him down and bury him. But, but, but suppose they come in here and find us. My dear doctor, you don't understand. My aunts are doing the dinner dishes. They'll be in the kitchen for quite some time. Oh, they will? Yes, they've always kept a very neat home. Shall we go? But, Abby, are you sure they've gone out? Yes. They're out there at their car. Besides, we've got to get Mr. Hoskins out of this window seat. Yes, poor dear. He can't be very comfortable. And when Mortimer gets back, he'll take care of Jonathan. There'll be an awful row. They've never liked each other. Martha, I will not invite Jonathan to Mr. Hoskins' services. Abby, dear, we better hurry. Yes, let's see if Teddy is still in the cellar. Teddy, are you down there in Panama? Who dares call the president by his first name? Mr. President... We've got another gentleman. Is he dead? A yellow fever victim. Teddy, I'm afraid you'll have to hurry. Ah, that's it, Doctor. That's fine. See how nicely he fits? Just like this window seat was made to order. Now we'll go upstairs. When my aunts have gone to sleep, we'll come down and put him away. And after that... I know, Johnny, I know. I operate. Well, everything seems quiet enough. They must be sleeping, I guess. Might as well have a little light down here. Yeah, that's better. Now, let me see. First, I've got to get Hoskins out of the window seat. Not very pleasant, but it's got to be done. Come on, old man. I'm sorry to disturb you. Another one! Mortimer! Darling, you're back. Just in time for the services. And Abby and Martha. There's another body in the window seat. Look! Now, who can that be? <laughs> Why, it's a stranger. My goodness, how did he get in there? Now, wait a minute, you two. You can't get out of this. That's another one of your gentlemen. Mortimer, how can you say such a thing? That man's an imposter. But you admitted... You admitted you put Mr. Hoskins in the window seat. Well, yes, I I did, but I... Well, this man couldn't have just got the idea from Mr. Hoskins. (laughs) By the way, where is Mr. Hoskins? Teddy took him down to Panama. Yes, he's down there waiting for the services. Abby, dear, we've always wanted to hold a double funeral. No, Martha. I will not read services over a total stranger. Stranger? Aunt Abby, there are 12 men buried down there in the cellar. You admit you poisoned them. Now you try to tell me this one is a stranger? Well, of course. Darling, you don't think I'd stoop to telling the fib? <laughs> thinks he's going crazy until his brother Jonathan walks in. That makes the answer fairly apparent, and Mortimer shifts right into high. He tells him he's going to call the police and show them the very dead Mr. Spithalzo. And it looks like his bluff is going to work when Dr. Einstein comes rushing in. Johnny, 
Johnny! Come along, Doctor. It seems that we are leaving. No, Johnny, wait. Just now that Teddy takes me down to Panama again, and guess what? What? Johnny, we stay. We got an ace in the hole. Now, Jonathan discovers poor dead Mr. Hoskins, and that changes things all around again, especially since Mortimer has to leave to finish some very urgent business. And now, while they're awaiting Mortimer's return, the two old ladies are quite upset. Jonathan, will you please tell us what you plan doing with your Mr. Spinalzo? Going to bury him with your Mr. Hoskins, I suppose. Oh, no, you won't. We won't have any strangers buried in our cellar. And besides, the cellar's crowded already. Yes. There are 12 graves down there right now. Twelve graves? As you can see, that leaves us very little room, and we're going to need it. You, you, you mean you two ladies have murdered all the... Murdered? Certainly not. It's one of our charities. Why, what we've been doing is a mercy. You've done that here in this house, and you've buried them down there? Johnny, we have been chasing all over the world. They stay right here at home and do just as good as you do. What? You got 12? They got 12. I've got 13. Oh, Johnny, 12. 13. No, Johnny, you can't count the one in South Bend. He died of pneumonia. He wouldn't have got pneumonia if I hadn't shot him. No, Johnny, he don't count. He don't count. You, you got 12 and they got 12. The old ladies are just as good as you are. Oh, they are, are they? Well, that's easily taken care of. All I need is one more. That's all. Just one more. Well, here I am. Oh, please, young man, take my advice. Go away from this house. Go away now while Johnny is still busy in the cellar with Mr. Spinalzo. I'm sorry, Doctor. I'm expecting someone. Someone very important. Besides, I've still got to write my review. But I tell you, Johnny is in a bad mood, and when he's like this, he is a madman. Don't worry, I'll take care of Jonathan, too. Ah, Himmel, don't you got no sense? Uh, Don't you learn nothing from those plays, you see? Are you kidding? You think people in plays act intelligently? You should have seen the one I had to cover tonight. There's a fellow in this play, knows he's in a house with murderers. He's even been warned. But does he get out? No, he stays there. Now, I ask you, Doctor, is that intelligent? You are asking me. He didn't even have sense enough to be on guard. For instance, the murderer invites him to sit down. Oh, you mean, won't you sit down? (laughs) So what happened? He sits down, just like this. Wrong, just like this. What do you think they tie him with? What? The curtain cord. That's very convenient. A little too convenient. When are these playwrights going to use some imagination? So he sits there, the big dope. This fellow who's supposed to be bright, he sits there just like I'm sitting here letting murder walk up behind him, just waiting to be trussed up and gagged. You're quite right, my dear brother. That fellow wasn't very smart. Well, he seems to be gagged and tied quite well. All right, doctor. We go to work. Uh, Please, Johnny, first I need a drink. Oh, there's some wine here. Oh, yes, the elderberry wine, by all means. I pour you one, too. Oh, how I need this. Please, doctor, your manners. Not without a toast. To my dear dead brother. Charles! 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 Oh, 
him on. That idiot. He goes next. You hear me? He's next. No. Oh, no, Johnny. Not Teddy. We'll get to him later. Come on. We've got to work fast. Hey, what is this? It's the cops. Listen, that Teddy's got to quit blowing his horn. We promised the neighbors. All right, officer. We'll speak to him. I better talk to him myself. Where's the light? Ah, that's better. I'll go up to his room and I... Uh... Hey, ain't that Mr. Mortimer? Uh, yes, it is. Well, what's he doing tied up like that? Well, he... Uh, he was explaining the play he saw tonight. <laughs> that's what happened to the fellow in the play. No kidding? Well, I wouldn't want to interfere. Hey, O'Hara. Oh, uh, hiya, Brophy. How's the prowl car business? Ah, kind of warm. Lieutenant Steven. Did he get you on the radio? Yeah, he says he got so many complaints from the neighbors, you'd think they dropped an atom bomb on Flatbush Avenue. He says we got to take Teddy and... Uh, uh, what's that guy trussed up like that? Oh, that's Mr. Mortimer. He's playing. Well, get him untied. He looks like he's choking. Oh, sure. Won't take me but a second. Officer, to... perhaps you better let me... Hey, who is this guy? Uh, that's, that's my brother. And you'd better stick around because he... Don't listen to him, officer. He's dangerous. Huh? That's why we had to tie him up. He's the lowest kind of person in the whole world. A dramatic critic? <laughs> and my two aunts. Huh. You think they're sweet, charming old ladies, do you? Well, there are 13 bodies buried in their cellar. Listen, you be careful what you say about your aunts. They happen to be friends of ours. Hey, Brophy, can you imagine what a puss like his... Why, he looks just like Boris Carlos. Why, are you... Hey, wait a minute, lay off. Hey, Brophy, help me. Let go, Brophy. you. What's the idea? You hear me? I said, let go. Oh, yeah. Better take care of him for a while. <clears throat> what was biting him? Choking me like that. I don't know. When you said he looked like it... <sighs> hey, wait a minute. <sighs> this guy is wanted. You sure? Sure. Don't you ever read through, detective? <laughs> he escaped from an asylum... Well, why, that's the way he was described. He looked like Karloff. Is, is there a reward? Yeah, yeah. Help me lug him out to the car. But, but how about the bodies in the cellar? Bodies in the cellar? Ain't that enough to show you he's nuts? Hey, hey, what about the other one? You you know who I mean, Mr. Mortimer. The doctor. Yeah, he must have walked out. Oh, don't worry, we'll pick him up. Come on. Uh, Mr. Mortimer, you'll excuse us, huh? I, I mean, seeing as how it's a reward. I understand. Uh, but you will take care of Teddy, though. Absolutely. Tonight. <laughs> Martha and Abby, I know it's very late, but you see, Mr. Witherspoon came all the way over here. He's the superintendent of Happydale, you know. He is? How nice. Yes, and all the papers have been signed, and he's going to take Teddy with him tonight. Really, Mr. Witherspoon? Well, that was my understanding. Mortimer, does Teddy know? Uh, not exactly. Uh, he thinks he's going on a safari to Africa. Abby, dear, we'll miss Teddy, won't we? We love him so. Oh, I've fixed all that, too, Aunt Martha. You and Aunt Abby are going along just so you can be close to Teddy. Why, Mortimer, how thoughtful of you. Yes, isn't that nice? And, Mortimer, you can have the house. The house? Of course, you'll need it if you're going to marry Elaine. Elaine? Holy Toledo, she must still be waiting. Excuse me, I've got to go and call her. <sighs> He's such a good boy, Mr. Witherspoon. Yes, yes, I'm sure. You know, uh, since we're all going away together, I... I think we ought to celebrate, have a party. I'm sorry, but I'm here in an official capacity. Oh, that's too bad. Tell me, does your family live at Happydale, too? I'm afraid I haven't any family. You're all alone. <laughs> oh. Isn't that too bad? You know, Martha, 
If Mr. Witherspoon won't uh, let us give him a party, at least we might offer him a glass of wine. Of course, the elderberry wine. Elderberry wine? We make it ourselves. Well, uh, of course, at Happydale, our relationship will be much more formal. But here... Oh, we're very informal. Yes. Uh, go ahead, Martha. Uh, pour him a glass. From the Screen Guild Theatre, broadcast on November 25th, 1946, that was Arsenic and Old Lace. We have reached the end of tonight's presentation, so until my name appears once again on the MSS calendar, it's time for me to release the key and return the room to you listening audience for your final questions, comments, and concerns. Until we meet again, have a good night, a great weekend, and the sweetest of dreams. <laughs>